chapter 3. If that seemed offensive <laughs> to, to our sensibilities about how, how good and, and important we are, let's go to 2 Timothy 3, where all hope in mankind is totally dashed. All our hopes in ourselves and our prospects for righteousness or pleasing God are dashed on the rocks of the truth of man's fallenness and brokenness. We're in the Christian life of Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read it briefly. I'll read the passage and then we'll pray. It's uh, 2 Timothy 3 and verses 1 through 9 is the paragraph. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Giannis and Yambris opposed Moses, so these also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Giannis and Yambris' folly was also. May God add his blessing to the reading of his precious word and the longest list of brokenness, I think, in Paul's writing. Our Father, we thank you for the completeness that we have in Jesus Christ and the peace that he's brought between us, between us and you, so that where we were at enmity, now we are united, we're reconciled. Father, thank you that as we read through this uh, prophecy of things to come, we are in despair of the prospects of man and his advance. At the same time, Father, we have our hope fixed entirely on the appearing of your Son. Strengthen us uh, to be that way today through what you've said. We ask it in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. In our context, what in the world, what in the wide world is going on with Paul's prophetic Christian cynicism? Let's show up up there. Christian cynicism. You know what cynicism means? It's a big word. I wrote it up there because I expect you to know it. And if you don't know it now, I'm going to define it so that, well, glossary define it so that you can know it. Cynicism means that regarding humans, I am not expecting good things. No good deed goes unpunished. It's cynicism. And Christians uh, are often supposed that they are not cynical. That we are hope springs eternal. That we are sweetness and light. That everything is going to turn out okay. My favorite... uh, Political pundits and commentators like to talk about the promise and the hope of the American spirit. And this is where I kind of part ways with these guys because I want us to be optimistic, but in the right direction. And I don't have a lot of hope in the prospects of human progress of man's deliverances of God's good things into history. I'm a Christian cynic because I'm reading what Paul has said and I'm comparing it with my experiences. And I'm not going to leave you without hope. I'm just going to say we need to smash the idols where our hope is reposed, uh, where it doesn't belong. Our hope is in the Lord, period. And I love our country and I love our history and I love, well, that which in our history is reflective of our Savior. But um, our hope is in the Lord. So Christian cynicism in 2 Timothy 3, where are we doing? Paul is fixing Timothy... uh, 
strengthening Timothy, I should say, to get back into the ministry of the gospel, where there's been some sort of situation where he's been sidelined. Timothy has gone to the Ephesians. Timothy has gone to the Ephesians, and we have a lot in the New Testament about the church or the believers in Ephesus. We have Acts chapter 20, which we'll look at a little bit today, where Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders. On the island of Miletus, they meet where Paul is cruising through. He says, I can't go all the way to Ephesus, but if you can meet me on Miletus. And so he has this one last ministry moment in Acts chapter 20 with the Ephesian elders. He describes to them, in part, what they're experiencing in Timothy's ministry. Later, Paul writes the letter we call the Ephesians. I believe it is a letter written for the churches of Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia, with with Ephesus as the chief church. One of the manuscripts we have of Ephesians is actually written to the Lacedonians. I'm sorry, uh, to the um, Laodiceans, right. I get my vowels messed up. The Laodiceans, which is one of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And it's not probably a misprint. It's probably that they were erasing who the recipients were, because it's to this region of Asia Minor that, that the Lord Jesus sends the letters in Revelation 2 and 3 to. And so Ephesus is a very interesting church or, or place of churches, a, a body, a place of believers in, in this massive metro, metropolitan uh, area. It's this interesting place because the, the gospel came there and they got a foothold there and it went and spread through the world there because it, it's interesting because the, the writing of the letter to the Ephesians is so rich theologically. And Paul says things that no one else says. We don't have anywhere else in the scriptures, Paul will say about the nature of the church and uh, our our mission. And um, we honor God in his work through this church. Remember the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 had lost its first love. It's doctrinally sound, but it's devotionally broken because it doesn't love God, even though it's holding fast to sound doctrine. How can that be? But that's true, and that's the warning, I think, to Preston City Bible Church. We want to be doctrinally sound in as much as, and, and in that be loving of our Savior, our Creator, and our obedience to Him. And so this is a problem place. There's great trouble in Ephesus, the great burning of the magic books. There's paganism and occultism uh, throughout the culture, especially in this port city that's extremely metropolitan. And uh, so you have all kinds of issues. The Ephesians are so proud of their temple to um, Artemis of the Ephesians that they cause a riot when Paul preaches Christ. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so this is the context where we beat up on the churches in Corinth. We beat up on the Corinthians because it's the Las Vegas of the New Testament. Uh, you know, my body is for food. My food is for the body, meaning I can do whatever I want with my flesh as long as my spirit is committed to God. And so you have first Corinthians six, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We beat up on the Corinthians. We thrash the Galatians because Paul does because they've, they've departed from the gospel of grace by grace through faith, salvation. And they've embraced a gospel that is of another kind that isn't the gospel at all in Galatians one. And what is that gospel? Believe and be circumcised. That's Galatians. That's the problem that you believe and keep the law and that's your salvation, but it's not your salvation. It's the work of Christ on the cross. That's your salvation. And if you get circumcised, Paul says you've severed yourselves from Christ. Meaning if you think salvation is through this ritual uh, surgery that God told Abraham and his children to do, then you are severing yourself, not interesting words, severing, severing yourself from Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean they lose their salvation at all. It means that they've broken fellowship by denying the gospel of grace, by grace through faith salvation. Now, we beat up on all these churches, but it's interesting what's going on in Ephesus. 
Paul has sent Timothy, and this is his second letter to Timothy. It's his last letter in his epistles to strengthen Timothy, who is a young man and has somehow, again, been sidelined. And so we've had so much instruction already in the first two chapters, and we concluded uh, with the great summary of 2.19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. The great summary of God's business, he's got you, he knows who are his, and your business, you obey him. You walk worthy of his calling. And then he talked about the vessels, the in the large house, there are gold and silver vessels and wooden and earthenware vessels because the pots in the house have purposes. Some of those purposes are food service and some of those purposes are not. And you have to choose in 220 through 26, what kind of vessel you want to be, Timothy. If anyone cleanses himself from these defiling sinful behaviors, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful to the master. And so Timothy in verse 22, you flee from youthful lusts, which wage war. Um, you flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You walk this walk, Timothy. You don't join with them. You sanctify yourself. But, re- but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations from the problem people in Ephesus, in the church even, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant, his slave, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, literally with humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God, it's about God, may grant to them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. It's really, as he closes down chapter 2, it's Paul's writing, or he has an amanuensis is writing, taking dictation from the Apostle Paul. As this chapter concludes and we start the next paragraph, the next thought, he's saying you are an agent in what God is doing with the people deceived by the devil. There are four parties. There is God with his message. There is you carrying that message. There are the people who have been deceived by the devil. And then there is the devil. It is the whole package in 220 through 26. And they are ensnared. These people that you're, that you're dealing with that are opposed, they're ensnared by the devil. So there's your compassion. They are trapped and they need to come to their senses. They're like in a trance is almost the portrayal. And you need to deal with them with patience, with kindness, with gentleness. He's talking about people that are opposing the message of the gospel. And, and that's the fight in Ephesus. And so you can see if Timothy has to deal with people that are opposing the gospel, you're like, well, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't want to go in there and, and, uh, and say things that are going to be op- opposed and, and have people throw rotten fruit at me. or what. I don't want to do this. And Paul says, no, you are, you are God's agent for some that he will grant that they'll get this change of mind and come to the truth. And so you go and you've, God's going to send a messenger. He wants you to be the one. You go stand in the gap and you take it because it's really about God freeing these people from the ensnarement of the devil. There's your context for our passage. And now Paul starts talking in terms of where things are going. Now, this is an interesting passage because he talks about the last days and it is eschatological. That means end times. He's going to talk about the end time days, what's coming. And by doing this, he helps every believer in church history from then until now, until Jesus comes back. He helps every one of us deal with our connection to the culture. He tells every one of us 
that if you lean on the culture, you like Israel going after Egypt will be leaning your hand on a reed and you'll be pierced through for it. If you lean on the culture to see who you should be or what you should believe or what you should think, then you will be leaning on the wrong source of your self-identity and it'll break you. And that's what he's going to do. Every culture, every culture is poisoned by Satan's world system of deception. And the end of this, it, it's going to go from wherever we are today in Ephesus, Timothy, unto really bad. It's going to go from where you are bad to much worse. And that's the end times. He says, now you need to know this. That's my paraphrase of Gnosko and the imperative. I put my imperatives, my commands from God in red because they highlight for us that there are commands. And I do that because um, it's easy to, in the, in the rationalization about grace, forget that God in grace has told you what he wants you to do and that he's in grace given you the Holy Spirit so you can do it. And then you have to choose to benefit from that grace and do what pleases God. And that Christian obedience that is by grace through faith will be often misunderstood as legalism by people that are mere theologians and not studying the text. You need to know this. In the last days will come, in the future, will come kairoi kalepoi, hard times. Your Bible might say difficult times, but it's that phrase that we have in our cult that we might say these are hard times. That's exactly the way I think the idiom Paul is using what he means. There are hard times coming. You've got trouble now, but you're not in the last, right? Now, Hebrews chapter one says in these last days, he's, he's uh, revealed himself through his son. And it makes us think, well, this is an eschatological thing that we, yeah, Jesus has come. And many of the prophecies of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Many haven't. They're going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ. But before he comes in the last days, hard times are a coming. Now, this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and other places in his ministry. And I doubt not that the apostle Paul is prophesying what Jesus had said. And then I noticed that it, the, this slide is all Greek. And you can be like uh, they said in Julius Caesar in the first act. It's all, what did he say? It was Greek to me. That was from, from, uh, from Shakespeare. Uh, it was Greek to me. And I know that's all Greek, but I just want you to see verses 2, 3, and 4 are a bunch of nouns and adjectives. It is the 18 constituent list, 18 things that men are going to be. And I'll just read it real quick. For they will be in the future who the men, men will be in the future. Anthropos, mankind, it's men and women, but um, we usually say man, since it's a masculine noun, the men. They will be philautoi, philarguroi, alazanis, huperephanoi, blasphemoi, ganus. Wait, that isn't helping you, is it? Let's put it in English. They will be lovers of self, lovers of money, braggarts, arrogant. But I re repeat myself. What's the difference between a braggart and an arrogant person? This is fun. What's the difference between a braggart and an arrogant person? You're like, well, they're the same person. Yes. Do all arrogant people necessarily say it? No. You've got your loudmouth arrogant people and then your sneaky arrogant people. <laughs> all right. Braggarts, arrogant, slanderous, disobedient to parents. Hey, that hurt. Disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Well, Thanksgiving's coming. 
This is an interesting thought. The national holiday that defines our practice of coming together as a nation really is Thanksgiving. That is our, our national holiday. What I mean is that from the very beginning, George Washington is saying, let's set aside a day to give thanks to our creator and, and pray. And that's, that's where we got our, our holiday that we call it of, of Thanksgiving, our celebration. And it's a, it harkens back to the 1620 deliverance that God saved those um, those uh, wayward congregationalists who came over from uh, England and, uh, and, and by way of Holland. Ungrateful. This is the characteristic of unbelief. And we get it out of Romans chapter 1. They, they knew God, but they didn't give thanks. They know we have a creator, but we reject him as creator and we don't give him thanks. It's the soul of unbelief. And when you're struggling with ingratitude, beloved, you are struggling with unbelief. That's a great gut check. But not ungrateful people, unholy, unaffectionate. Really? Yep. Unaffectionate, irreconcilable. Diaboloi is a noun. It means devils, and that can mean malicious gossips. It means someone that attacks and destroys with the mouth, like a slanderer. Without self-control, not possessing self-control. Brutal. I looked that word up in Greek. It means brutal. Haters of good, traitors, reckless, impulsive, puffed up. Lover, lovers of pleasure more than, Malone, more than lovers of God. Lover of pleasure is the word philos and hedone, hedonism. Just satisfying yourself. They're teaching in ethics classes today to our culture, to our children as they can, that the greatest good is that which provides the greatest pleasure to the greatest number. That is classical hedonism. That pleasure, that what pleases you or satisfies you is the, is the ultimate aim. And we teach that in every, every facet of life. It's our culture. But that's what's going to happen, he says, in the future. There'll be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And yes, there were hedonists before Paul. It was a philosophical movement. But he's saying this is going to be the characteristic description of mankind. Do we have any other places in the Bible that characteristically describe mankind in a season of judgment? Is there an, a broad brush that paints a portrait of the human race before God brings an overwhelming judgment on the human race? Is that a ringing a bell for anyone in the Genesis 6 bell? You remember what God says about the human beings before he brought the flood in Genesis 6? I, I can read it to you. If you get there first, you can read it. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is the easiest one to find because it's in the front. Genesis 6. Here we go. In verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that, listen to it, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every, that's a universal Intent of the thoughts of his heart was only, that's a universal, evil, continually. That's like a semi-universal, like all the time. When was it on evil? All the time. How much of it was on evil? The whole thing. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart. Something else I learned from that verse. Then we skip it because we're like, this is really bad. Man is completely grand theft auto all the time. It's just completely wickedness all the time. Some of you got that reference. You're like, yeah, that fits. Man's thoughts are on wickedness continually. Now, what we miss is the thoughts of his heart. And somehow we got this ridiculous theology. I don't know where it came from, but besides just saying Satan, that you feel with your heart and you think with your head. You feel with your heart and you think with your head. In Genesis chapter 6, 
The anthropology is the way God says mankind is that his lave is the part that thinks. The thoughts of his, and intentions of his heart were on evil continually. The heart of man is the core of man. And yes, it is the place of sorrow. It is the place of rejoicing. But it's also the place of thinking. It's also the place of the mind. It's also the place of reasoning. It's also the place of intending and wanting and desiring. It's the core of you. That's why it's called the heart. And it is not this thing. The heart he's talking about is not this thing. It's the part you think with. And it isn't just your brain. I believe the physical location for the heart of man is probably the brain. We're talking about an immaterial component in your immaterial spiritual makeup. That which is the core of your inner person. That which is regenerate. And this heart is on wickedness continually thinking of man's heart. Now that's the justification or the explanation. I should say justification. It is the explanation for why. It is the cause and the flood is the effect. Genesis 6 is the explanation why. Genesis 7 and 8, why this happens. That God destroys the entire human race. Uh, did he destroy the whole human race? No, there's still eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. That's eight. All right? And so, so what we conclude is that what's going to happen in the future before the final judgment, whenever this description, he says, in the last days, is very vague. This is going to be the description of mankind. This is how men will be characterized. Now, do you know people that are characterized by these things at times? Yes, you do. And you look in the mirror and you're like, yes, I have been at times. Moms and dads of believing children, should your kids look in the mirror and say disobedient to parents? Yes, they should. And it isn't, don't worry, it's not just because New England. Should we all say at times, yes, these are, I'm, I'm guilty of these things. Have you ever lacked self-control? Like every time you commit a personal sin? Yes. Have you ever thought more highly of yourself than you ought to think? Yes. Have you ever said anything about it? Lovers of money? Well, I can't do X, Y, or Z because job, money. Jesus says you cannot serve God and wealth in Matthew chapter 6 and nails every single one of us because we know that if I don't have my work and I don't have my livelihood, I can't take care of the things that I have to take care of. But see... We're not serving wealth, we're serving God. And he's providing for us through our work, through the work that he's provided for us to do. He's providing for us, and that's the rationale of money. We don't love the money, we serve God. Money becomes a medium of exchange, becomes something we use to glorify him with. Lovers of self. Have you heard people saying, here's one, here's my favorite one. Let's see if I can get my Oklahoma on. <clears throat> Nothing against Oklahoma, but you got to kind of do it in Oklahoma. Sometimes you have to give yourself things that you wish other people would give you. That's the secret to getting through these hard times with people. You're not getting the affirmation you want from this person, so you have to give it to yourself because you're not getting it from this person. Have you ever heard it this way? You have to love yourself first before you can love the other person. Have you ever heard that? Where self-love becomes the objective? Because, hey, beloved, we're all struggling with that. Boy, are we struggling with not loving ourselves. That's the problem. I just really don't think highly of, my, of myself enough. And then the person that promotes said Oklahoma and says, well, you all are God. We are God, ultimately. And uh, should have stayed in church and listened to the pastor instead of uh, freelancing and going with the world because the world will always tell you, Satan's lie will always tell you that you'll be God. In Genesis chapter 3, God knows 
that when you eat from the tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God is, God is always telling you how to make it and how to live and how to serve him. And Satan is always telling you how you can be God. Have you heard it this way? Lovers of self. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. And I'm going to, excuse me, excuse me. I'm going to say my truth. Do you know who owns truth? The God who, by his very existence, construes reality. Reality and truth are really closely related. Like, true statements are reflections of what actually is, reality. And so that fact-truth dichotomy is actually a satanic ruse. It's a word game, Wittgenstein says. It's a lie, I would say. Wittgenstein says we, sh- we, we can only play word games. The Bible says the word of God is alive and powerful. It is accomplishing what he sends it to do in, in Isaiah 55. What am I saying? What are you up here ranting about, Pastor? Your truth isn't your truth. If you have the truth, it's God's truth. And you're saying truth because you have access to him. And he's graciously allowed you through the miracle of language and through the miracle of the operations of your uh, wonderful faculties in his image, you've been able to access some of his truth. Truth is God's because it exists from his design and it emanates from his being. Truth is, and that's the metaphysics of Christianity. You ever operate like you don't have a Christian metaphysic? Pastor, I was just worrying about this. On the way to church, we were talking about how we don't always operate from a Christian metaphysic. <laughs> you with me? I've lost you. I'm circling back around. What's a Christian metaphysic? The metaphysics is the nature of reality. It's what you're saying is the nature of reality. And this is really interesting. There's only a couple of ways to do this. I'll give you a materialist metaphysics. It starts from this crazy idea in our sinful nature that we get that we know all that there is from observation, from seeing and reasoning, and that's all there is. It's arrogance. We have this arrogance, this presumption of omniscience when we have very little sense. We don't have omniscience. We've got very little sense, very little understanding or knowledge of things, okay? But, but we have this perspective, and it, it, we all struggle with it at times. If I can think of it or if I can see it or touch it, then it's real. If it's not, if I can't, it's not. Materialism. Materialism has to presuppose that everything exists has always existed. No, 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 pastor. The big bang is when it started. No, there was something that banged. There was something that exploded. There was a prior condition to T minus one. There was a, there was an, before the event that the materialist claim created the universe, there had to be the thing that exploded. And, and what's done in science is we put, a, we put a pin in there. We say, well, we can't get to that. So we just say the beginning was the Big Bang. But it's a lie. Materialism has to conclude eternally pre-existing matter. Try that one on for size. How many Big Bangs were there? How many explosions and regressions and explosions and regressions and explosions and collapses were there in this eternal sequence of creation and chaos? That's starting to sound like yin-yang. I could, well, that'll preach except that it's not true. And it's actually pretty hard to believe that all the complexity of creation happened randomly by accident from eternally regressive matter, eternally preexisting matter. I mean, that to me sounds very unlikely. Of course it does. Pastor, you're a Christian. You're empowered by the spirit of God to welcome the things of God in first Corinthians chapter two. And I am, and I pray that you are too. The alternative is Christian metaphysics or uh, a biblical worldview. The Christian nature of reality is that God is before there's anything else. 
that eternally before there was matter, there's an eternally pre-existing person who made all the matter. Either, I think there's really two ways, either the matter is eternal or the creator is eternal. And now we're going to talk about cause and effect and the uncaused cause of creation. Do you believe that the uncaused cause is a material thing that always existed? Or do you believe that someone who is himself uncaused created everything? That's Christian metaphysics. And we think that before there was anything, there was God. And so he's still here and he still cares. And he's the God, as Francis Schaeffer said, who is there. And what we do in our little in curvature of the soul, which personal sin, our sin nature drives us to, we think it's about us, lovers of self. Now, I started down this road and asked, do you know of yourself guilty of these things at times? Or do you know of others? Or can you look at, you know, especially other people's children? You can see these sins in other people's kids. It's very easy uh, to do, you know. And um, I mean, not in our church, but if you look at other churches, people's kids, um, you see these sins, these categories of Uh, of Paul just going off on this list of the consequences of the sin nature. It echoes the list of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Before you get the fruit of the Spirit in 5, 19 through 21, he he lists the deeds of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, 23, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these sins. He's not echoing the Ten Commandments because there's actually 19 in the list. Number 19 is in verse 5. Having a form of godliness, that's good worship toward God. What am I doing? It's 19. Joel, is this going to mess you up? Tap once for yes, tap twice for no. We're still still online? Okay. Having a form of godliness, that's good worship toward God. We struggle with this word. I hope you all struggle with this word. When you read godly in the Bible and you think you're godly, I hope you know it doesn't mean you're like God. I ought to wear white robes. I ought to grow my white beard out to whatever imagination I have of what God is like. Godliness means good worship in its, in its etymology. Yusabaya is good worship. And so it means good worship toward God. That, you being God word would be a better English gloss, but that sounds awkward. So we'll say godliness. But that's what he's talking about is living a life of worship toward God. Having a form of godliness. These prisses will go to church. Now, they're all the things we described, but they'll, oh, they're going to church. I mean, that's, yes, New England. That's what we have. But by, uh, at the same time, they have denied the power. Now, this is interesting. Look at my little magic red ball up there. It's. That is a Greek word, aute. It's a pronoun, just like in English. But it's a feminine singular pronoun. So it has to be describing a feminine singular noun. That's how it works. Praise God for the Greek language. What is its power? What is the it that has power? What is the it? Having a form of godliness but denying its power. What is it? What has power? Godliness. Yusabaya. Feminine singular. Did you know there's power in a life of worship toward God? Did you know that walking by the Spirit, you're empowered by the Spirit of God? Did you know that abiding in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God can bear the fruit of the Spirit in you? Did you know that you don't have to submit to your sinful nature in Romans 6? You can walk and present yourself to God and present the instruments of your, the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. 
There is power in godliness. And saying the devil, oh, he's strong. That's what we're talking about. Making an excuse for my sin nature and denying the power of godliness. So I walk around like I'm godly, but I'm really not. Because inwardly, I'm this corrupt debacle in verse uh, 2 through 5, 2 through 4. Now, I want to say, if this list, if any of these things appeal to you, like, what's wrong with that? That's a problem for you. That's a problem of your worldview, your metaphysics, your perspective on the consequence in metaphysics, which is ethics. See, who God is defines what reality is. And reality can be communicated through revelation. And that's our epistemology. We know God because he's revealed himself to us in creation and then in his word. And so that knowledge, that epistemology, that knowing how things are, is then going to speak to our ethics our politics, our views of biology and physiology, and all the things, every topic is now addressed by God's revelation, because God is. If you're struggling with any of these categories, it is an epistemological problem. You don't understand God's revelation, and therefore you don't understand God's ethics. And there's no shortcut here. You can't skip straight to the ethics and say, well, we just want to do the best for for the most number of people. That's the, that's the philosopher's error. We always start with God and say, what does God want? Because it's always the best. And then we find our ethics through what God has said in his word. What's wrong with being brutal? Sometimes you have to be brutal. No, characterized by brutality, unaffectionate. The, the things that make life worth living in terms of the human experience are all sucked right out of the human race. Unaffectionate. I can't think of a better way to get us there than to make us all addictively dependent on passive stimulation via screens in various forms. I can't think of a better way to render the human race into this atrophied thing that that C.S. Lewis called men without chests. C.S. Lewis described this in uh, The Abolition of Man in his introduction. And he talks about um, a book. Uh, a, a grammar book where some humanists have got in there and they have denied uh, really the effective part of life, affect, the affections. And he says, if we end up with the way that the educators are trying to go, this is back in the 40s and 50s, if we end up with them winning and they run the way we think about literature and, and life and reality, then we'll have nothing but a generation of men without heart without chests, with no affections. Now back to the idea of the heart. I told you the heart isn't just where you feel, but you rejoice and you sorrow biblically in the heart of man. And so, yeah, this is the breakdown of the human being. Without God's word, in other words, without a relationship with God, you end up with irreconcilability. Irreconcilability means no treaties. That's literally what it means. That the, the word under here is treaty and they've negated it with an alpha primitive. No treaty, no, no quarter. I can't be brought to reconcile with someone that I'm at odds with because, well, my sin nature says that I shouldn't be treated that way and that that person who treated me that way one time is now in a certain category and so there will never be restoration and I've relegated them to the unacceptable category and so we've got two kinds of people. The people in my little world as the God of this world that I decide are good and the people that I decide are bad. And you do this. We all do this to a degree. And it's irreconcilable. And, uh, and so what I'm saying is that, yes, we see this on the increase. We see an uptick of this type of experience describing mankind. 
I watch the politics just like you. I watch the, the news like you. I doubt everything that I hear at first. First thing is doubt and then let it prove itself. That's how we prove something is we assume it's wrong and then let it prove itself right. Let God be true though every man a liar in Romans 3. All right, that's my series, The Benefit of Doubt. I commend it to you. Uh, we started working on it in 2015, I believe. And um, I don't know how many messages, I think my 34 messages in The Benefit of Doubt. And it's a Christian worldview on, on current events, how to think about things, uh, starting with the Bible. Assuming biblical, godly metaphysics that God is, and that he's revealed himself so we know him and what he, what he wants. And then we build our ethics and politics out of that and political philosophy. And I, I love walking the dog on all these things, just running it down. I can tell you my whole philosophy of American history and voting and, and all that. And you're like, preach it, pastor. And I don't preach these things because it's not the Bible. It's the application of the Bible. And I'll try to connect those dots for you at times. And I use it mostly as illustrations. Let me give an illustration. You can't have socialism in biblical uh, uh, philosophy. They can't coexist. You cannot have a creator who owns all the stuff by creating it and then distributes it as he sees fit and then have a government come in and say, we don't like the distribution. We're going to cause the masses to rise up in covetousness of other people's property. And then that covetousness will justify their stealing the other people's property so that then the collective government can distribute it as it sees fit in replacement of God. You can't have socialism or communism and biblical uh, theology of property coexist. It can't. God is the creator and he gives the property. Or let me say it a more clear and explicit way. Just read in Exodus 20, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. In the Ten Commandments is the provision for protection of private property, even in your heart. Don't want the rich person's thing and then don't steal the rich person's thing. Rich being defined as they have something that I don't have. You can't be a socialist and be a biblicist. Because of God's design of private property. Now, capitalists unite. What is private property for, according to the Bible? I mean, I can't bash socialism and not tell you the biblical view of capitalism. What is God's philosophy of private property? Oh, I love it. I, I tell you what it's not. It's not lovers of money. It's not lovers of self. What is God's philosophy of private property? Matthew chapter 6. He's the one in charge of providing for your needs. So you seek first his kingdom. Second Corinthians chapter five, Matthew chapter 19, Matthew six, store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. What is God's view of private property? I think John 17 basically encapsulates it. Jesus is talking to his father and he says, glorify me with the glory I had before the world was so that I will be able to glorify you. In Revelation chapter 4, when the 24 elders cast their crowns at the feet of God, they're doing so because they have crowns to cast. The property that God is securing for Israel is the means by which Israel will worship Yahweh. That which God gives to us is that which we now have to use to glorify him. That's the biblical view of private property. You cannot get between me and my property Biblically, you can't be biblical and get between me and my property because that is the means by which I have from God to honor him. That's what it is. For, and it's not just that way now. It's this way forever and ever and ever and ever. Whatever rewards you receive in the judgment seat of Christ in, Matthew, or in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 10, whatever rewards you receive are greater enablements to glorify and honor God. All right. 
Now, these are the guys. They, have, they will have a form of godliness, but having denied its power, and that's very prissy and supercilious and religious. Oh, they're very religious. Oh, they are seen in church on Sunday. So you'll never have the loss of religion, and that's what's described in Revelation 17 and 18. Mystery Babylon is a religious movement in the tribulation. It's coming. There will always be, oh, we're, we're, we're worshiping. But it's, it's an outward observance um, that ultimately will worship God's enemy. And then Paul closes down his long list. He takes a breath and says, and tutas apotrepu, these avoid. All of these people are, you are to avoid. Now, he says in last days, this is how, be how people are. But then in verse 5, he says, that's how some are today. 2,000 years ago, that's how, so avoid these people. This is the cancer of the human race in terms of its wickedness that will spread. It's the cancer that's always been a problem for the human race. I read you Genesis 6. Have you read Genesis uh, 11? Right after the flood, it isn't very long before they're saying, whatever God said, we're not basically going to listen to. What we're going to do is build us a city and glorify ourselves. And what happens? God confuses the language, makes it impossible for man to, to, through language, metastasize this cancer of rebellion against God, this cancer of sin gone to seed. God shuts it down by confusing the languages and dividing us by culture and language. And so... Now we're back. Hey, the internet is the Tower of Babel. We're all, you know, I'm, I'm not long from reading your paper with Google Translate, whatever language is in, and having a pretty good idea what you're saying, right? And that's a lot of work. But um, if Google Translate can do it now with a few clicks and a few mouse overs and copies and pastes and stuff, where are we going to be in 10 years? See, the Tower of Babel's back. And we have a unified culture. Nancy Piercy talks in her book, uh, Saving Leonardo. She talks about global youth culture. Now, this is interesting. You are not the same culture as somebody in Singapore. You're not. But the teenagers that are imbibing pop entertainment culture that we're raising or not are very similar in their outlook to the teenagers of Singapore doing the same thing because it's a global youth culture. That's what she's describing, especially in urban um, environments. So the cancer is spreading. God stops it in in Genesis 11 with the tower, but now it's back. And it's going to come back and you end up with a one world government again, a one world universal government described as that of, of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation and in Daniel. But this problem has been with the human race all along and it's there in Paul's day as he's writing Timothy. It's here in our day. We can say, I wonder if the cancer is spreading. I think it must be spreading. These people avoid. Now, if I saw that, like you, I would avoid. I would avoid with prejudice. I would avoid with 30 caliber avoidance. Uh, at least. Big boar, we're talking about big boar yesterday, John. Maybe big boar for something like that, just to be absolutely certain. Well, that's a wolf in sheep's clothing, obviously, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing. Avoid these people. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, just to take a verse that reminds us of this, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They have denied its power. And you avoid these people. We're in Ephesus. 
I don't know how many years it's after Paul says farewell to the Ephesians in Acts 20, but it's several years later. In Acts 20, 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you men overseers. That's Acts 20, 28. He made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus made you overseers to pastor or to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Acts 20, 29. I know that after my departure, says Paul, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, you elders of Ephesus, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Almost like Jesus at the Last Supper, one of you is going to betray me tonight. He's talking to these men and saying, of, your, of this number, some of you are going to conclude something other than Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's God in the flesh, and he came to reveal the Father. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Don't you be the one or one of the ones that leads the flock astray. This is the savage wolves that Paul is talking about that Peter's dealing with in Ephesus, I think, when he gets to avoid such men. And verse 6, we'll talk about creeps and their prey. This is very insidious. When we go to war in Nehemiah chapter 4.14, you know why you go to war? Because you're defending your wives, your, your daughters, your sons, your brothers, your sisters, your, your relatives. You're fighting to save your family. Read Nehemiah 4.14 sometime. One of, the great, uh, one of the great warfare statements in the scriptures. Nehemiah 4.14. In our culture, we're losing sight of the difference between men and women, which means that warfare is going to become very interesting. We're not really losing sight between the difference between men and women. It's not really happening. We're just trying to destroy the protections we have for women in our culture so that a much more brutal reality can, can obtain. You can hear it in the, in the lyrics of a lot of rap music. There's a real brutal subculture that's coming. And um, what I'm saying is that we protect womanhood. Men, we're bigger and stronger so that we can protect them. And we're not saying women don't have equal value or anything like that. We're placing women on the pedestal they belong on, and we are their protectors from these savage wolves. Listen to what happens to these women. For among these men who are characterized by these sins are those who creep into houses. Creep. It could mean slink. It could mean slip in. Like some sort of scum oozing in under the door. They creep in. They're, they're, they're sneaky. They creep into houses and take captive. Long word here for taking captive. It's what Jesus did when he took captivity captive in Ephesians 4, 8. It's a, it's a military term. But it, it, they're, they're capturing or captivating women. This is seduction. There is a seduction. It doesn't necessarily have to be sexual seduction. The point isn't even sexual, right? Take captive women. Weak or idle women. doesn't say all women are weak. There is a weakness associated that's different from men in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. 
But here, this word is um, a word throughout Greek writings used for idleness or weakness of the fairer sex. You working, hardworking women that are industrious, I don't mean you're out at a job necessarily, but you might be. I'm talking about industrious, and you know what it is to get up and go and work and do what's necessary because it has to be done, and all of your husbands do too, and it's very helpful. Uh, you know what we mean when we talk about weak or idle women that are not so motivated in their conscience. They're loaded down with sins. Loaded. They have been loaded down with sins and are led along, argo, ago, to be led in the passive, led along with various impulses or lusts. This is exactly the target for these wicked people of the last several verses. They're carnal. They're not necessarily overtly fighting God. They're just passively disregarding God. But you, they're a target, and they become a breeding ground. They become the, the place where the wickedness metastasizes. Women who are always learning. This, by the way, always learning is about these ladies that are already carnal, and looking for the next interesting thing. Have you ever known people? I, I once knew somebody that was, uh, was trying different churches. And they went from this church to check out the Jehovah's Witnesses. To go check out the other. And I'm like, <laughs> let's insist that Jesus is God in the flesh. Right? Like, I know that there are nice people at every church. And there are lots of people at churches that will smile. And they almost paint it on. They're glad to see you. And you need to look closely at what we're saying and where this is coming from. Because... You might be just eating poison. And so they're always learning and never able to come to the epignosis, the full knowledge, that spiritual knowledge from God of the truth. Have you ever used this phrase out of context when it's instead it's talking about the men or this is talking about these women. It has to be by the, um, the feminine uh, participles. These people are always learning and not able to come to the full knowledge of the truth, these ladies. So notice that the target, the, the prey for the predator is set. We borrow something from, I think the Graham brothers at least wrote it down for us. What is that? What's that story up there on the screen? That's Little Red Riding Hood, right? She, she should have her hood on. That's like some sort of prom dress or something in the snowstorm. That's not a good idea. The original story, she would have been better protected because she had her little hood, her little cape on. What's going on here? This is a carnal person who is easy pickings. And that's how predators work, right? You've watched uh, Discovery Channel. I used to watch The Wild Kingdom. Remember that? The, the, they're, they're kind of whispering as the lion creeps up on the herd of wildebeest. What does the lion inevitably do? Excuse me, lioness. Usually it's girls. The lionesses do the hunting. What, what, is, what do they inevitably do? They chase, but they pick one. They, they, they make their selection. They've got to use their little bit of speed that they have, a little burst of speed to go grab this one. And they find one that they think is weak enough that they can, they can take down. And eventually they, they use their powerful jaws to clamp on its spine and, and paralyze the thing by breaking, severing its spine. Where'd they learn that? Or they clamp on its throat and choke it off uh, with, those, with those powerful jaws. It's amazing watching lions on the hunt. But they're picking the easy pickings. This is why they say man-eaters. We've been interested in the Savo man-killers in Chicago Museum, and, and they make movies and stuff. The, the, the lions that eat humans 
Um, don't, usually animals don't. Usually they're scared of us and they, they hurt us if, if we frighten them or get in their terror. But sometimes a lion will pick a human. And I guess the theory is that if the lion eats a human for whatever reason, it gets a taste for it because it's easy. And then you've got a, a man-eater and then you have to have you know, somebody come and kill that particular lion because it's been trained the wrong way that the humans are its food. My point is that the prey of the predator is is a selective target. He's not looking for the one wearing the full armor of God. He's looking for the woman that's already weighed down with all kinds of sins and led on by various impulses or lusts. And that becomes the target of these humans that Paul said in verse 26 are deceived and ensnared by the devil. They don't know that they're minions of God's enemy, but they are. In verse 8, now, in the same manner that Giannis and Yambrus opposed Moses, so also these men are opposing the truth, men whose minds have been ruined, unapproved with respect to the faith. This summary description again from verses 2 through 4, their minds are, are, are done. They don't even know what they're for, and they are unapproved, tested and found wanting with respect to the faith, like Giannis and Yambrus. Again, okay, let's talk about the categories of people. You've got God seeking to save the, those that are lost, You've got Peter, I'm sorry, you've got Timothy working in this gospel ministry that Paul's equipping him for. You've got these targets, these prey, these women that have been um, um, spiritually, I would say, molested. And then you've got these, these men who are deprived, depraved, who are going after them. And then you have Satan who's pulling the strings on those men. And these recruiters for God's enemy are out getting converts. All right? That's what's happening. In all of that arrangement... Timothy is to resist these false teachers so that they could be saved. And he's also, by doing that, protecting those that they would attack. Giannis and Yambrus. This is the traditional name through uh, Jewish tradition, the names that were given to the magicians that worked for Pharaoh in Exodus 7, 8, and 9. Exodus 7 through 9, the story of Pharaoh's magicians. It's your homework to read Exodus 7 through 9. But again, I want you to see, there's God sending Moses to Pharaoh, who's working for God's enemy, saying you won't free God's people. God sending Moses and Aaron to free the Israelites from Pharaoh, who's working for God's enemy. And between Moses and Pharaoh are the magicians. God's got his spokesman. Pharaoh has his spokesman. God's got his power. Pharaoh's magicians have Satan's power, but only to a point. And maybe you've seen the movie. They did a pretty good job depicting this part of Exodus 7. God tells Moses, your your proof that I'm sent you is that the stick turns into a snake. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and, uh, and he demonstrates the power of God by his stick turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians turn the stick, their sticks into snakes. Pharaoh's people have power. Moses' people, Moses has power. God's people have power. Pharaoh's people have power. Well, who's got more power? Well, Aaron's staff eats all the snakes. Eats the other snakes. So God's more powerful. That's the, that's the portrayal. And they're able to keep up a little bit. They're able to turn water into blood. When Moses turns the water into blood, when God's power does, Pharaoh's magicians can do that. They have satanic power. But they can't get the gnats. When Moses sends gnats, they can't do the gnats. And in chapter uh, 9, 
The last thing you hear about Pharaoh's magicians is that the plague of boils, the magicians get boils too. And they're like, this is the finger of God. We, they start proclaiming that God is God and uh, whatever power we have isn't. And the point is that they are through the story of Exodus 7 through 9 demonstrated to be frauds. Yes, they have spiritual power, but they don't have more power than God. And God is offering uh, life to the Egyptians and freeing his people Temporal life, anyway. They're unapproved, these men, like Giannis and Yambris, but they will not advance any further. So the end times has this portrayal of humans that you can see in Ephesus in Paul's day, and it's hurting people today, and you feel like, well, it's overwhelming, the cancer's spreading. No, they're not going to be more successful than, uh, than just a little successful. The ten plagues of Egypt, Pharaoh's magicians could only do a couple of them. They, their, their power runs out. And so you don't want to be cynical to the point of despair. We're cynical about humans and their prospects of progress. Remember, when you hear about progressives, they're saying that we're getting better. And Paul is saying we're getting worse. But just like the the magicians of Pharaoh, these men will not advance any further, for their folly will be evident to all, just as theirs, Giannis and Yambrus, was. The comparison takes you back to this Exodus event with power, Remember, they have the form of godliness, but deny its power. They're coming from a different power. What's our conclusion? Christian cynicism. Can I tell you, uh, I think, seven things about Christian cynicism as we close? First, we have no hope in man's progress without God. The end times, according to God, through the Apostle Paul, is characterized by a humanity that looks a lot like Genesis 6. Lovers of self, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, disobedient parents. This is going to be the human race. The farther we go, the less you want to lean on your culture, believe me. The less you want to be a, a product of your culture, whatever culture you live in in the, United, in the world or subculture in the United States. Second, the coming of God's kingdom is clearly taught in the scriptures, and it's a rebuke of the efforts and advancement of man. Postmillennialism is a satanic lie. I have a friend that's a pastor who believes in postmillennialism. He thinks that we're going to improve and get better through the gospel and bring the kingdom over all the earth, and then Jesus will come back. That's called post-millennialism. It was pretty popular until World War I. Things are getting better. Uh-oh. The war to end all wars. And then it gets worse in World War II. I guess we're wrong about that. And then, well, we haven't said anything like that since. We're done with war, except on the United Nations building. They're trying to print Isaiah chapter, chapter 2 on the wall. The coming of the kingdom is a rebuke of man's advancement, man's progress. It isn't a product of man's progress. It's, it's the king coming to defeat man who's opposed to him. Third, the kingdom will begin with the leveling of the kingdoms of man. The kingdom begins with the leveling of the kingdoms of man. The place for you to read about that, that I would most recommend is Daniel chapter two. All the kingdoms of man are stacked up in an, in an array against God. And then God with the stone cut without hands comes and destroys all those kingdoms, and then becomes the mountain that fills the whole earth, mountain being kingdom. All the kingdoms of man will be leveled. It's all through Isaiah. That which is raised up against God will be leveled, and that which is low will be exalted. And the coming kingdom of Christ is leveling of the kingdoms of man. Psalm 2, he will crush the nations with a rod of iron. Fourth, so our hope cannot be in political processes. Your problem is not your politicians in this country. I know we can point to the politicians and say, but he did this or she said that. I know. But how did they get in power? The electorate. 
The problem in this little experiment in this country always comes back to we put them in power. We idiots. So we can't dance around and say, well, they, yeah, they, but you gave them power. And how'd you do that? You're deceived. Our hope cannot be in political processes because the wolves and the prey are made for each other. Those women that are already weighed down with sins, here comes a new teaching. And we're off to the races. Now we have a movement formed. In the 1800s in the United States, I got a new word from an angel. And your wife and your wife and your wife, these are my wives now. God said. And they went with it. What kind of women said, okay. <laughs> weighed down with sin. So I, I challenge you that your hope isn't in political processes. We have good story. You know, we, it's almost like sports. Like we win some, lose some. But somehow the government continues to grow. The debt gets bigger and China gets stronger. How's that happening? Well, just our hope is in the Lord. And you might want to start learning Chinese. You don't want to laugh at that because it's true and it hurts. Fifth, the wiles of the devil will ultimately fail in the passage. The wiles of the devil only go so far. He's only so strong. He's not more powerful than God. So sixth, those human beings working under their own sinful urges to ensnare others will only advance the rot so far. It only goes so far. And that means that we don't look to the world for how to conduct ministry at all. Is that what's going on in the church today? Do we look to the world for how to? Yes, we're looking to the world for how to do it. And we don't. That's not our, that's not our call. Do you need to know the world? Yes. Do you need to be of the world? No. We need to speak to it. Seventh, God's power will ultimately dominate. And eighth, like Moses and Aaron were messengers in a conflict between God and Pharaoh and his magicians. And it's invisible and you can only see what you can see. But when, when God tells you the story this way, that in the end days, it's going to be awful. And it's pretty bad now. Right. It's the world we're working in. And so we have a healthy Christian cynicism. And ninth, I don't want to leave you in despair. Our side wins. But only through the overwhelming firepower of God's self-revelation. Today, God's self-revelation is coming to the world in messages like this, where we read the word of God, we exposit it, and then you're a product of it. You're ready to go say, you know, yeah, things are bad, but God says he's going to make things better. It's a great summary to tell the world. Things are bad, but God said he's going to make things better. And we, I don't really have a lot of hope in the progressiveness of man. What is the overwhelming firepower of God's revelation ultimately? It's Romans 16, 20. I leave you with this blessing. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace and peace of our Lord be with your spirit. Father, we thank you for the eternal life. We've enjoyed and been thinking these thoughts together. We do not rejoice in the wickedness of man. We rejoice in the clarity of your presentation and your word that it is as wicked as we experience it to be, that things are as bad and truly worse than we think, and that looking to man for the solutions to man's problems is always doomed to failure. In fact, it is Satan's ace trump of religion. Father, we don't want to be like described here, these men who are uh, holding to a form of godliness, but having denied its power and cynicism doing what is pragmatic. Father, we are insistent on the power of godliness, that the walk by the Spirit does produce the fruit of the Spirit. And it is impossible for us to fulfill the lust of the flesh as we depend on you, as we walk 
in that power of your spirit. Father, these words from the Apostle Paul were meant to strengthen Timothy for the work you had for him. I pray that they'll have this effect on us as well. That when we look to you, we have the message. When we look to the world, we have the audience for the message. And that's the direction that it needs to flow. Father, there are some among us, our children, who have been deceived by your enemy and ensnared by the devil to do his will. There are some uh, in, our, in our periphery, in our community, in the same category, many around us. And Father, at times here, it seems that uh, time must be short if you're going to stop the wickedness. But we have to confess that certainly it could get a lot worse. In this concept, context, I pray for the, the salvation of our children, those that don't know Christ, so they would come to know Jesus as their Savior, their moms and dads, be effective evangelists. For those who do know Christ but have walked away from serving Him, Father, I pray that you would get hold of them and bring them home. Bring them to you, bring them to your word, bring them to fellowship with you through whatever means is necessary so that their lives will be glorifying to you as willing participants and not as proverbs. Father, I pray for those who may be hearing my voice that don't know Jesus as Savior. Christians are known for this pessimistic spirit because of our look at man's sinfulness. But Father, we're not self-righteous. We're saying we are the sinners. We are the broken ones who desperately need your grace in our lives every moment. Thank you for the amazing grace that sent Jesus to die for our sins, who raised him from the dead to give us eternal life, and for the message that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. We thank you in Christ's name. We all said, Amen.